The art world gathers at the Javits Center this September 8th through 10th for one of the most anticipated cultural events of the fall, the Armory Show, New York's Art Fair. Enjoy priority booking. Buy your tickets today at thearmoryshow.com. Welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. I'm Christopher Bea, the editor of Harper's Magazine. And in this week's episode, I speak with Justin E.H. Smith, the author of the cover piece for our September issue, My Generation, Anthem for a Forgotten Cohort, part of a Generation X themed issue that also includes an essay by Adam Kirsch on Zadie Smith and the Gen X novel, a Easy Chair column by Hari Kunzru, and a work of prose by John Jeremiah Sullivan. Here is my conversation with Justin. I'm very happy to be here discussing our September cover essay about Generation X with Justin E.H. Smith. Although I'm not sure I should call you Justin E.H. Smith. You are Right. This, uh, this piece was my last public appearance as Justin E.H. Smith. Uh, from now on, I'm Justin Smith Ruyu. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you are the writer and philosopher formerly known as Justin E.H. Smith. That's right. Um, that's right. And this, you exist in a kind of liminal state right now as we discuss <laughs> right. this I'm, piece. I'm, I'm in transition. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, Justin, you are, um, you, you write a lot for a mainstream audience, including a, mm-hmm. um, previous Harper's cover story. Mm -hmm. You also are a professional academic philosopher um, Mm -hmm. who writes books, many of which I have Mm -hmm. read and enjoyed very much, that I would describe as sort of straddling the academic general audience divide, the sort of university press books that a interested, the kind of intellectual layperson who reads Harper's would mm-hmm. certainly pick up. They're not just written for other academic specialists. Right, right. Yeah, my ideal audience is Harper's readers. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Um, they're a good audience. And then you have also these days a Substack that is yeah. extremely uh, popular and on which you are quite prolific, I'd say, and also pretty um, uh, formally adventurous. Ah. I try, yeah. It's called the Internet. I've been doing it for about three years, and I do all sorts of things there. Mm-hmm. So I say all of that as a lead-in just to kind of establish your bona fides as, as a writer, because what I want to do briefly is talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the editorial process that um, led to this piece, which sure. I, I generally don't like doing, but in this case I think is, is sort of telling about the subject. Sure. Well, you might remember the initial stages better than I do. Well, the way I remember it is this. I, I, I was interested in the subject, the broad subject of the relationship between art and politics, which right. is something right. that lots and lots of people are obviously talking about. And from my end as the editor at Harper's, what I am interested in is broad conversations that I think are worth having um, mm-hmm. but where I, it seems that things are kind of calcifying into opposing camps and mm-hmm. in my view it would be valuable to have 
uh, not like a third way, but but someone who is neither of one camp or another looking sure. at it. That sometimes it seems like these things they fall into these fairly unnuanced opposing camps. There's there's some truth on either side, but neither one is is kind of wholly capturing it. Sure. Um, and broadly, it felt to me like there's essentially two sides on the art and politics debate. Mm-hmm. There's one side is, I don't even want to say the aesthetic autonomy kind of side, because it's much more a sense that art is, it's escapist, and mm-hmm. it's there for the sheer pleasure of it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's maybe meant to be in some way irresponsible, but it's just art has nothing to do with politics, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's a mistake to to bring the standards of politics to art or to think. And and, and there is a the, the school of people who are constantly, quote unquote, politicizing things um, mm-hmm. are basically Philistines. And then mm-hmm. on the other side, there's a view that politics is just really, really important in a basically all-consuming way, and it is itself politically irresponsible, maybe Mm -hmm. particularly at this moment of emergency, but maybe always, Mm -hmm. to be, quote-unquote, consuming cultural content that is itself not politically engaged or not politically responsible, that one of the things Mm -hmm. you need to be judging when you're judging whether or not you want to spend your cultural consumer dollar on one thing versus another is Mm -hmm. its political responsibility, its political hygiene. And I don't much hold to either of those views Mm -hmm. myself, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to write something myself. I wanted to find someone else who I I, I also felt didn't fit into either one of those camps very easily, who had spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff, Mm -hmm. who could tease out some of these subjects. So I I came to you. Uh-huh. That's right. Now it's it's all coming back to me. And certainly this is something I've been pounding away at for a long time now, really since the beginning of the Trump era and the rise of what I take to be a new widespread conviction among my peers, among the kind of people I hang out with, uh, that we're in a state of emergency and everything else must be suspended. And this uh, this feeling only increased uh, in 2020. Now, I would personally never want to say that uh, art has nothing to do with politics. I would never put it so starkly. Right, right. And I think uh, almost nobody would. Uh, but what I would say is that if uh, political concerns are dictating the content and the form of artistic creation, then it's a simple category mistake. Then we've simply moved into a different mode of social, cultural communication. Um, And we've seen this many times in history, and it never ends well. I think about the very vibrant artistic scene in the first few years of the Soviet Union, when all sorts of formal experimentation was uh, permitted and even celebrated as the vanguard of the revolution, only to be uh, kind of rigidified and uh, stifled over the course of the 1920s when Stalin came to power with uh, socialist realism. And of course, uh, it succeeds in what it does. It gets a message across, um, but the 
message behind the message, as I would understand it, is uh, that um, we are not living in a free society and that a free society is a healthier society and the health can in fact be gauged by the kind of vitality of the artistic creation as an autonomous practice. So you you wrote about that for me, and you delivered an essay that was a that was a wonderful essay that we were very happy with. But one of the things that came up in the essay that I then, when I read it, was like, well, well, I haven't seen this really anywhere. Was mm-hmm. the generational question? Not that I haven't yeah. seen the generational question applied to this topic before, because yeah. of course it's constantly applied to this topic. But the schematic is roughly that. There are millennials or, or younger people who came of age in the era of social media and in mm-hmm. the maybe from the Obama presidency onward who have this sort of like everything is political view. Yeah. And yeah. then there are basically the, the, the boomers who are, represent the, the view of kind of art needs to be liberatory and, and, mm-hmm. and all of that. And that the somewhat in-between view is one that was, for you, highly influenced by your situation between the two of these, which is yeah. to say yeah. your membership in Generation X. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I write in the, in the final piece, the piece that eventually got published, um, I was long loath to identify myself with a generation. I resisted it very much. But at some point, one has to be honest about the appearance of a rift between oneself and the people who come after and uh, try to account for the historical and material and economic changes that led to this rift. And so that's what I've been trying to do. And as I say in the piece, uh, I feel like people my age, I was born in 1972, people my age had our understanding of artistic expression and its relation to the political fundamentally shaped by the hippies, Um, even if we were not yet born for uh, the kind of apex of their period or their most exuberant phase, they were our parents and they they put things into our heads when we were little kids. So we are, in a sense, faced with a choice of kind of keeping their vision of the world alive or kind of succumbing, as I like to put it, to the new regime. And I know many people my age who have found it easier to succumb than I have for whatever reason, basic uh, character or genetics, I don't know. Uh, But I've always been extremely resistant and extremely uh, bristly, uh, not so much because I, I, it's, it's, and I've, well, I sh- maybe I shouldn't put it like that. I don't bristle. I'm just nonplussed. I have long been confused by what the younger generation is saying. Now, I think it must have been around 2011, 2012. I remember a student of mine whom I friended on Facebook, as, as I did back then. This was one of the first uh, kind of enlightening moments for me. Um, had posted something like he just watched Reservoir Dogs and it was such a great movie. 
movie, but it's a shame how much Tarantino uh, relied on homophobic slurs. Right. And this was an eye opening moment for me, because if you if you've seen this movie, if, if you recall, um, these are vicious gangsters who right. cut people's ears off and laugh about it and so on. And they are just absolutely morally reprehensible people. Um, and so it seems to be natural that part of the complete artistic picture of what such a person would be like would be that he uses slurs that we, the more uh, kind of restrained, um, are hesitant to, to use. So this has been, um, uh, again, that was maybe, again, 2011. I've been confused ever since then about what the, the younger people are actually demanding, that we not represent evil or that we do represent evil, but only if the evil people are on board with us as regards the LGBTQ plus community. Other, other than that, evil is fine. It just seems to me strange, confusing, and I remain confused. Well, I, I have a lot to say about that, but just on the local thing, one of the, 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 the weird tensions about that is that it seems to me that part of the argument that gets made when one applies that, that kind of standard to the movie is that a certain kind of behavior is just obviously inarguably morally reprehensible. Mm. But another part of the argument seems to be that it is really important that you be signaling in some fashion your disapproval of that behavior at the same mm -hmm, time that mm -hmm. you're presenting it. You know, for example, so, so which is to say, in, in a Tarantino movie, if someone cuts someone else's ear off, right, mm. you don't actually need to hang a lantern on the fact that that's not a morally acceptable thing to do. I suppose, right? at least for now. Yeah. yeah. But if somebody uses a particular kind of language, um, mm -hmm. you know, that there is, there's this worry. Does Tarantino think that's all right? Is that why, mm -hmm. you know, so there's this idea that you need to actually be really clear about where you're drawing your moral lines. But that idea is, is itself coupled with the idea that that that, there, that moral ambiguity doesn't exist in the world, and if that's right, true, right. then then that it should as much go without saying that yeah. Tarantino doesn't approve of the language as it does that Tarantino doesn't approve of cutting people's ears off. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose that is at least a coherent explanation of what the what the thought is that led my former student to 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 write that. Um, it's coherent, but on the other hand, I would argue that, you know, in the end, um, if I had to choose between homophobic slurs and people getting their ears cut off, I would probably choose the former. Right. right? Um, not that I condone slurs in any way, um, but uh, I, I think maybe, as you say, there are contested evils and uncontested evils, but if we say that the domain of art should uh, restrict itself to exploring only the uncontested evils, then it gives up on uh, exploring, I'd say, the more difficult cases, yeah. the, uh, the ambiguous cases. And that's what, that's what art does best, I think. I, I want to jump back for a second and, and just say part of the reason why I found the direction in which this work was now going so exciting is mm -hmm. um, 
because I recognized a lot of my own experience in it. So mm-hmm. I, I was born in 1979, and I, like you, was always loath to identify myself with a generation, but it was that much more complicated, I think, for me because uh, I was born in this somewhat interstitial yeah. Um, period yes, yeah. where it's not yeah. it's not even clear to me which generation I I would be you know uh, identifying with and, and right, right. I thought right. of I had a whole bunch of older cousins the the mm. children of my mother's older sister who were born between 1965 and 1975 uh, mm-hmm. which when mm-hmm. you're you know a little kid is a huge seems like a huge age gap they were yeah. way older than me and they were Gen X to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, then there was at a, a certain point there started to be this thing that was millennials, but that wasn't really me either. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I have as I've gotten older, and and very much as you have, somewhat in opposition to what's come after, I've started mm-hmm. to identify myself more strongly as being, mm-hmm. you know, in the same generation with the people who were born in roughly the same decade right. that, I, that I was. Right. I think just to get back to one of your points, one of the things that people who grew up well after us, I think cannot entirely appreciate is how large the 60s loomed yeah. in the 80s and 90s in a right. way that right. I I took for granted, but that's not the way things normally were. You know, So we had so much of what was going on in big budget movies was Vietnam based yeah. or Vietnam aftermath. That's right. You know, yeah. you had something like the wonder years on television. I mean, wildly a, a lot of the, the sixties era musicians who were still around then are, are still around now. You know, you had mm-hmm. Dylan, mm-hmm. you had the stones, you had Neil Young, but also the, 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 the sort of legend of the Beatles, you know, they yeah. were just, yeah. and, the way people were about Woodstock, where you have to mm-hmm. s- sometimes, it's difficult to describe to, to, to people the amount of cultural significance that was invested in right. a weekend like rock festival that right, had happened right. 20 years earlier. And part of that, I think, is this sense that the boomers were so shaped by this generational divide between themselves and their sort of uh, silent generation or whatever Mm -hmm. parents. And then they were the, they, they, they were the first generation that never gave up its youth culture, that never grew out of its youth culture. So when they were adults driving the culture, what the culture was about was how things had been when they were 18 years old. Right, right, right. And furthermore, they were very committed to not having a, a generational conflict with the next generation, which is to say our generation. You know. Right, right. Well, they remained eternal children in some respects, and I think for the most part, they avoided intergenerational conflict. I can remember as a teenager in the 1980s, there was a widespread sense that our era was kind of a a weak aftershock of uh, what our parents had experienced. Um, And it was uh, in every way kind of 
inadequate uh, sometimes uh, already in the period. We uh, thought of 1989 as a kind of second summer of love with raves and ecstasy uh, and acid house and um, uh, kind of the, the paisley motifs that were, again, uh, kind of an homage to um, to the aesthetics of the 1960s. And we had whatever protest movements we could muster against apartheid and so on. But there was always a sense that it was maybe not as exciting. It was the long tail of something. But uh, still, my general sense is that we were trying to do things like our parents. And in that respect, we were very different from our parents right. who had experienced a radical break with their parents. And we're very different also um, from the more recent generation, which is completely kind of in a state of rupture with what came before. So again, I find among people my age, um, I don't want to, I mean, it's not like I'm expressing uh, kind of filial piety here that you have to remain true to the vision of your parents. But what I'm realizing more and more is that uh, being a loyal Gen Xer uh, means in large part defending the legacy of the 1960s, which is to say before I was born, right? right? right. Um, which uh, which sounds somewhat paradoxical, I think. But then as I, as I discuss in the piece, the, the big difference, though, is that our generation, the Gen Xers, were uh, anxious about authenticity, about doing it right. right. And in fact, that became entirely absorbing. Are we doing it right? Is this authentic? And how do we keep from selling out? That doesn't seem to have been such a concern of our parents' generation. In fact, you know, I was thinking about this um, when Tina Turner died recently. I happened to be visiting my mother and she was like, oh, let's put on some Tina Turner. And she went and she put on some of the really schlocky, synth over-synthesized stuff from Tina Turner's 1980s comeback. And I was like, don't put that on. Like, put on Proud Mary from 1970. Put on the, right. the real Tina Turner. And my mother doesn't understand the difference, right? To her, it's all just Tina, and she loves it. And uh, so my mother's life, I think, uh, kind of followed the arc of Rolling Stone magazine, in a sense. Like, whatever Rolling Stone says is good, is good. Right, and right. as we know, that changed radically from the 1970s to the 1980s. She just doesn't see it, right? Now, one of the great insights, I think, of the piece, which I found, is this idea that uh, this connection you draw between the Gen X obsession, if you could call it that, with authenticity and with um, mm -hmm. not selling out and anti-corporatism and sort of cynicism about uh, a lot of that stuff with the way that the boomers basically did sell out the values of their yeah. generation as they got older. Yeah. You know, but they didn't, because they were the we never grow up generation, they continued to to, to play lip service to it. So you yeah. get things like the famous sort of like Apple think different, that sort yeah. of like, and you get things like the whole spectacle of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and-, and Right, right, uh, which gets some treatment in the piece, yeah. Yeah, and so it was, our generation was in this, this weird in-between space of having mm -hmm. been 
had certain values inculcated in us um, that came, that were generational values from our parents' generation. And then watching right. the spectacle of all these avatars of that generation just completely selling those values out. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, um, that's how I see it. So again, the loyal Gen Xer, as I'm putting it, and I realize I'm being somewhat obnoxious in putting it that way, um, is the one who upholds the values that were betrayed by the 60s generation and that the younger generations, millennials and later, uh, aren't even aware of. <laughs> right. They don't, they don't even see that they're, you know, there's a, th like the specter of kind of woke capitalism or the idea mm -hmm. that a, that a big budget piece of corporate intellectual property could be an act of social justice based on the yeah, yeah, diversity yeah, yeah. of its casting. Those sorts of things yeah. just seem, and, and, you know, we could be wrong ab about this upon closer inspection, but I think on a visceral level, just seem absurd to people of our yeah. generation well, and that people you know, coming I've, after us, there the, isn't that tension. Yeah. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the kind of old school cultural studies line, according to which, um, uh, articles of culture or fragments of culture can be, uh, taken up and, uh, outfitted according to the, the, original creative impulses of the people. And so, you know, you can't just say the Tasmanian devil or whatever is, um, is a corporate uh, product. It, it's what people do with it. And when you see it on truck mud flaps saying things the original Tasmanian devil never would have said, this is interesting. Right. This is noteworthy or the uh, the the pissing Calvin decal mm -hmm. uh, that was clear is clearly a violation of the Calvin and Hobbes copyright. I mean, that's interesting. It's, it's it's an interesting thing to watch. And I've never lost that cultural studies sensibility at the same time. Um, I still have trouble understanding the seemingly very all-consuming subcultures of uh, uh, fandom um, where uh, young people seem to devote a good part of their imaginative activity to the Marvel Comics universe or whatever. This doesn't seem so much like creative appropriation, as in the example of the pissing Calvin truck decal, so much as uh, subordination, as giving up. And uh, I, I find it revolting. I've always hated it. And I, I, I would also say I've been slow to really appreciate how important it is uh, for the millennials and younger to express themselves through fandom in relation to intellectual property like Spider-Man or whatever. I've failed to grasp this. And I think the reason why I've been so slow in grasping it is because I think it's profoundly sad. <laughs> yeah. If I could bring in an, another strain, I, I, one way you could think about this generation is obviously what what came before and its relationship to the 60s and to the 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 boomers sort of mythologizing of the 60s um mm. which was of course you know one of the things uh, ironically given that the boomers now stand in for the kind of almost anti-politics crowd um yeah. one of the things that it was 
that the 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 60s were quote unquote about was this vast political awakening was people mm-hmm. getting politically radicalized um mm-hmm. and then there was this obviously this sort of um you know end of history kind of a sense mm-hmm. to to what followed for for a while and then um, I, I realized that one of the reasons why I, I tend to identify more as someone who's in this Gen X millennial uh, mm. cusp maybe with the people who came before is mm-hmm. I was just getting out of college when 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, I think one way to think about this generation is a generation that came of age intellectually and emotionally and perhaps politically before the September 11th attacks Mm -hmm. and then had like everyone else to live as as adults as political actors and artistic actors etc in the the post for for basically our entire adulthood in the post 9-11 era Mm mm-hmm Someone in the office who was also born around this time, I think, was was saying when we were discussing this is, I think we were the last generation for whom in our youth, it wasn't cool to be political. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Does that, does yeah. that resonate yeah. at all with you? Um, well, I mean, I can remember being resentful of some of my peers in kind of the uh, suburban uh alternative subcultures of goths and new waivers and so on, that they were uh, apolitical. And I would have liked to have seen them uh, uh, not necessarily take up political positions, but just be interested in what's going on in the world. And here, maybe the seven years of difference between you and me uh, is significant, because what I would take to be defining uh, for people my age is the experience of um, the various revolutions of 1989 and the memory of the collapse of the Soviet Union and all of that. I can remember circa 1987 um, when I was claiming to be a Marxist-Leninist. We were watching a meeting of the Soviet Politburo on TV and my uh, my new wave girlfriend was watching these uh, kind of really, really square, unhealthy old men in the Soviet Politburo. And she's like, you want to be one of them? Because <laughs> right? she knew they were Marxist-Leninists nominally. And they, you know, looked like the guys down at the 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 Elks Lodge, right. you know, they look terrible. Um, and so I was frustrated with her for not thinking harder about our place in history. Um, and I think in general, our generation or my generation was profoundly shaped by um, by the uh, global political events of 1989 to 1991. But that led to a kind of uh, period of, I don't know, uh, sleepwalking in the 1990s, where we had a massive uh, American global hegemony with no potential threats even on the horizon, at least, you know, if you bought into the standard narrative. So all of us um, were kind of 
passively Fukuyamaites in the 1990s, just kind of by default. And that, for that decade, for the 1990s, did lead to a, a, a kind of apolitical, uh, as I put it, sleepwalking. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for you know, I I was old enough to be aware that that those revolutions were were happening and mm-hmm, but to mm-hmm. be on my radar, but not old enough to be a politically engaged person at that time. Right, and right, for me, right. it was much more like the 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 signature political event that was going on as I was coming into the age of being a really politically conscious person was yeah. the Clinton impeachment. Oh, you know, sure, yeah. the, and mm-hmm. that just was the kind of thing that would just make you think that the whole project was just was just ridiculous you know it was a bunch yeah. of people who didn't disagree on any of the substantive stuff in any important yeah. way it was all yeah. sort of you know third way centrism and yeah. then there was this culture war fight going on about yeah and th- by then we also had 24 hour and, cable news yeah. and um the clinton impeachment and the Lewinsky affair and so on is probably the first moment I realized what a farce all of this yeah. is, that that what we call politics is really just infotainment. I think that really only dawned on me around 1999. Yeah. <laughs> so have you, have you gone all the way from being someone who, who just rejects this generational thinking, particularly when applied mm-hmm. to yourself, but maybe more generally, to being a kind of uh, historical or generational determinist? Do you think well, that... Well, I, I mean, I, I find that the, the way for me to work myself into a position of uh, charitable interpretation, as we philosophers say, charitable interpretation of what the younger people are saying is to take a maximally zoomed out kind of long-term historical perspective and to try to understand the major global changes that are taking place that would explain uh, this intergenerational rift. And when I do that, um, I find that um, that I have considerably more sympathy for uh, what the the younger generation is saying, even if um, you know, for many of their individual claims, I I continue to bristle, and I you know I, I try to be aware also of the the extent to which the kind of criticism that I'm 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 offering up uh, could just boil down to you know, here are some things I like and here are some things I don't like. Um, And um, I I, I would like to avoid that. So my particular uh, generational uh, determinations, I I think, I hope, um, don't prevent me um, from uh, having novel insights about about our cultural history. I hope. (laughs) Do you... Do you teach undergraduates now? Uh, I mostly teach uh, at the master's level, and none of my teaching has anything to do with um, with uh, with this kind of writing. Um, my uh, my core uh, 
kind of day job work um, is, <laughs> I think, a vestige from an earlier period of my life. I'm a specialist of 17th century natural philosophy. <laughs> so uh, it's a kind of a way of avoiding the contemporary moment that was very attractive to me when I was in graduate right. school in the 1990s. But mostly I have masters and PhD students. So I ask because, you know, I, my job as an editor here with a very talented junior staff puts me in touch with, and we have interns coming in, new interns every few months, mm -hmm. uh, puts me at least in, in, in some touch with the, the sort of ongoing generational stream. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and there's been suggestions among a number of people that, if the millennial generation went when it came to some of these issues towards some extreme, the generation that is coming after them mm -hmm. is tempering it or swinging back. And I don't know if you have a lot yeah. of students who are yeah. in. Yeah, the, I mean, that's certainly my impression from talking to my 20-year-old nephew and some other teenagers I, I I know these days, they, they seem to be rolling their eyes at what they take to be a lot of the excesses of the of the millennials. And you know that's that's an interesting process. I, I wouldn't want to try to establish any kind of law-like claims about this or the dialectics of history or anything like that. But obviously something had to give at some point. <laughs> It's funny. Something has to give, even though there, what hasn't lifted is the sense that we're living in an emergency. But it's yeah, almost like yeah. people have 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 realized that the emergency is permanent, and thus they yeah. you just have to figure out a way to keep living your life under yeah, the yeah, state yeah. of emergency. Well, again, you know, I return to um, the kind of the the historical lesson. Um, there are many cases um, of uh, uh, artists left to themselves to create artistic work autonomously, and they end up um, uh, uh, coming up with formal innovations that change the world in a way that someone who subordinates him or herself in a kind of a priori way uh, to political ends simply cannot, right? And one of the comparisons I like, I think this can be traced to something Adorno said, if you compare Samuel Beckett and, um, and Bertolt Brecht. Bertolt Brecht was, I think, a, you know, an okay <laughs> artist, um, but he had a very clear political program. Beckett did not. One of them ended up changing the world, right? So again, it's not that art and politics have nothing in common. It's just that we're lying to ourselves if we think that the state of emergency uh, requires of us that we stop thinking about art as an autonomous sphere of creation. Once you've lost that, you've lost everything. Yeah. One of the great articulators of that autonomy and sort of a, a, a patron saint of, of uh, anyone who uh, champions that autonomy is Vladimir Nabokov. Oh, sure, yeah. The really significant thing about Nabokov in those terms is that, of course, he was not he and his family were, were not lightly treated by history. 
you know, he was born in St. Petersburg in 1899. His father was, was assassinated after the revolution. His family's wealth was repossessed. He wound up married to a Jewish woman living in Western Europe in the 30s. All, but it, 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 what I just mean to say is that if anyone could have could have thought of himself as as living during an emergency when political questions really had to trump everything sure. it could have been him and it's, sure. it it in retrospect it sort of gives him a um for it's i think s- s- some people who feel like they are they are profoundly um vulnerable or affected by political questions then mm-hmm. when a particular kind of you know basically a, a a white male who maybe is not vulnerable in the same way is making a sure. a, a call for um uh the autonomy of art and let's not be obsessed with politics they sort of say well sure. that's that's easy f- sure. for you to say yeah. but there are there are great examples of people who were um in incredibly politically vulnerable states who mm. still yeah. um held very dearly to this idea that the practice of art was uh, was not about yeah. addressing those political conditions. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, I, I, I would have more to say about Nabokov, but just um, briefly, you know, I, I've seen some criticism trickling in about the essay, uh, and one is that other than a single allusion to Run DMC, I do not talk about rap music. And of course, in a sense, that is the legacy of Gen X, um, because, you know, it's... Um, it's uh, co-nascent with us, um, and I would have a lot to say. Uh, and basically, all of the music I talk about is what you could almost call whitewashed alternative culture that we uh, young uh, white kids in the 1980s thought of as very authentic. And the process by which it was whitewashed is, I think, one that would need to be discussed in a more lengthy uh, uh, piece um, that I would want to write about this. Um, but to the idea that it's only white males who can think of um, uh, art as an autonomous sphere of creation, there I would say, well, hold on. I mean, look at someone like, say, Sun Ra, right? Um, and the wild kind of effervescence of Afrofuturism in the in the 1970s in, in music and even, you know, even jazz, I mean, even avant jazz or is not kind of uh, overtly, ordinarily, is not overtly um, kind of uh, transmitting um, uh, any kind of doctrinal message. It is a pure and free expression of um, of artistic creative genius, right? And so I reject the idea that this is um, this is something one uh, should uh, one can only call for from a position of um, white privilege. At the same time, I'm not naive about, say, for example, uh, the. Uh, mid-century Cold War efforts of the CIA to promote abstract expressionism. For example, this is a very common uh, example as kind of the easy-to-read kind of testimony uh, to the capitalist world's um, 
appreciation of free artistic expression. And it's probably true that Nabokov um, can only be fully understood in, uh, in connection with that. Um, that is to say that the United States was very happy to have an anti-communist Russian emigre author in uh, the mid-20th century doing his thing and declaring the importance of free artistic expression. That said, what Whatever. He gave us some pretty great novels. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> some wonderful ones. Well, this has been a pleasure to have this conversation. I, I could keep yeah. going for a long time. Um, I want to just mention briefly to our listeners that your essay is, is, is the cover essay from the September issue, which on the cover is given the blunt headline, What Happened to Gen X? Um, mm-hmm. But it's part of a an issue that has a lot on this subject. We have Adam Kirsch writing about Zadie Smith and the Gen X novel. And we have, um, um, I think, virtually every other writer in this issue, including John Jeremiah Sullivan and Lan Samantha Chang um, and um, our easy chair columnist, Hari Kunzru, is also a member of this generational cohort. Yeah, as it all yeah, we're representing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a great issue. Thank yeah. you so much. And, yeah, um, thanks. It was a pleasure to, to work with you on this piece and, um, Likewise. and a pleasure to discuss it with you here. Likewise, yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.